Good morning. Welcome to another episode of Crime Over Coffee. We're your hosts. I'm Abby. And I'm Erica. And today our editor Bryce will be joining us again. Hey guys, thanks for having me. Today's story is about one of the most terrifying serial killers that you probably haven't heard of, Israel Keys. Pour yourself a strong cup of joe and let's dive in. We just want to take a moment to remember the 2,996 people that lost their lives, as well as their families, friends, and loved ones who were all impacted on September 11th, 2001. We also would like to say thank you to all the emergency personnel that dedicated their lives and time to the terrorist attacks. Israel Keyes was born on January 7, 1978, in Utah to a Mormon family where he was homeschooled by his mother. When Israel was a little bit older, the family moved to Stevens County, Washington, and began attending a church called the Ark, which was known for their racism and their anti-Semitism. Um, Erica, for those who don't know, can you kind of explain what anti-Semitism is? So anti-Semitism is basically discrimination against people of the Jewish faith. So when Israel was living in Washington, he actually became good friends with Chevy and Shaney Kehoe, who were later in life convicted for murdering three people and attempting to murder others, which I found super interesting, especially knowing the fate of Israel. He joined the U.S. Army at the age of 20 and served in Egypt for about two years before he was honorably discharged in July of 2001. However, I couldn't really find why he was honorably discharged. I'm assuming it was due to some sort of injury or illness, but I couldn't find anything indicating as to what that was. Right when he left the army was also when his girlfriend became pregnant with Israel's daughter. By this time in his life, he was completely disowning any religious beliefs and was claiming to be an atheist. Israel was living in Anchorage, Alaska and making money by renovating homes, building decks, and doing random odd jobs that were giving him just enough money to pay the bills, but just enough time for his extracurricular activities, which those people in his life believed that his extracurricular activities just consisted of fishing and barbecues and typical things that people are doing every day. Israel was living his life until he made a mistake that would cost him. On February 1st, 2012, 18-year-old Samantha Koenig was finishing up her shift and working on closing the coffee stand she worked at called Common Grounds in Anchorage, Alaska. When she turned around to serve the last customer of the night, an unexpected man stood on the other side of the order window. The man standing there was wearing a ski mask and handed her a coffee cup asking her to fill it up. She made his drink for him and turned back to give it to him. The man standing there was now holding her at gunpoint. And I can only imagine the fear that she was feeling in that situation. But he asked her for the money in the register and told her to shut the lights off in the stand. So she was complying with this very easily and very quickly, which I think if there was a gun held at my head, I would also probably just give them whatever they were asking for. Well, I know at jobs I've had, they actually train you that if someone comes in to rob you, just give them the money and don't try to fight them or do anything in hopes that all they want is the money and they're just going to leave and then nobody else gets hurt. 
Yeah, a lot of times that is the advice that's given. And in a lot of situations, it does actually end up helping you if you just comply. So there is actually security footage showing what's going on inside the coffee stand. So if you guys want to see that, um, we will post a link on our social media in the description to that YouTube video. If you guys want to follow along with what I'm going to be talking about now. While she's walking around, she's shutting off the lights. She keeps going back over to him. And it's kind of weird because there's a good like seven or eight minutes where they're just kind of he's just standing on the outside of the building while she's shutting off the lights collecting the money and the one end of the coffee stand actually had right next to the light switch that she would have been shutting off there was actually a panic button right there for the security system that she could have pressed that would have that would have called the cops but it turns out that she never actually pressed that button Why wouldn't she press it? Well, I'm not 100% sure, but it's possible that she was too afraid to hit the button and maybe just believed that she really was just going to be able to give him the money and he would just leave after she gave it to him. Unfortunately, that's not quite what happened. After she had given this guy all of the money, he had crawled in through the window of the coffee stand and on the security footage you can't really tell what's going on we later find out that in this footage that we can't really see very well the perpetrator was actually tying samantha's hands together with plastic zip ties and he had put something over her mouth to keep her quiet once he was done with the binding of her hands and gagging her he grabbed her and they went out the back door to get into what he believed was going to be her vehicle however something that the perpetrator didn't know was that samantha had actually not driven to work that day and her boyfriend had brought her to work so the perpetrator decided that he would just take his own vehicle as they were walking out to his vehicle which was actually parked across the street in the Home Depot lot. We later find out that she actually broke away from him for a minute and started running, but he was able to outrun her and tackle her and subdue her again. And he was successfully able to abduct her. Were there any other reasons why nobody was seeing this? I mean, I feel like 8 o'clock, people are still out and about. I guess I don't really know kind of the location of where this was. Was it in the middle of nowhere or what was it like? So the reason that nobody really saw what was going on was the snow there was actually at a record-breaking high, and it was so high that it was blocking the views of the coffee stand from the main road. The coffee stand was also located in the northeast corner of a parking lot, and I am going to show you guys a photo of it, and I'll try to post a photo on our social media of the stand as well for our listeners. If you're looking at it, there's not really... A whole lot of stuff around here. Yeah, it's definitely in in an isolated area. It's about the size of like a food truck without the truck part. In the very corner of what is that? Some type of business? It is in the corner of a club called the Alaska Club. It's a fitness club. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so I don't know if there just weren't a ton of people there at the moment, but he was able to take her away without being seen. And like Bryce said, it was really dark out, so that was kind of on his side. 
At around 8.30 that night, about 15 minutes after Samantha had been abducted, her boyfriend showed up to pick her up and noticed that she wasn't there. So he just assumed that maybe she'd already gone home or somebody else had picked her up. So he went back to her place to see what was going on. Shortly after, he receives a text from her phone saying that she had a bad day and she was just going to leave town for the weekend. I'm assuming that this would have been a little suspicious to him. Well, in my mind, I definitely would have been suspicious because she didn't even have her own car. So coming from his mind, I probably would have first wondered how she's getting anywhere. Yeah, her and her boyfriend actually shared a vehicle. So there was not really a way for her to leave town without him already knowing or there being some sort of plan in place. Upon investigation of what may have happened to Samantha, they started to look at the surveillance cameras and they looked at the surveillance video from the Home Depot that was right to the north of Common Grounds. And this is where Samantha was seen heading with her abductor. The surveillance video showed a white Chevy pickup truck at the far end of the parking lot. The police immediately began to track down all of the pickup trucks in the nearby area that matched its description, and they were able to narrow their search to about 750 trucks. The police began going through a list of potential suspects that the truck could have belonged to, and they were not really having any luck with anybody on their list. It wasn't until February 13th, 2012, that the family heard from Samantha's abductor again. Samantha's boyfriend received a text from her phone saying there was a note at Connor's Bog Dog Park under Albert. The police went to the park and started searching, and it was under a memorial flyer for a dog named Albert. There was a photo of Samantha tied up and holding that day's newspaper. And I'm going to show you guys the photo. So in the picture, it looks like... I'm assuming this guy's hand is holding what's supposed to be the current newspaper to prove that he does in fact have her. And she's just sitting there and she's got a really blank expression on her face. She kind of looks like she's frozen in fear. The ransom note was asking for $30,000 and they were able to raise the money. The police deposited the requested ransom amount into Samantha's account. They began seeing the withdrawals coming out of Samantha's account. And each time a withdrawal was made, they sent police to the ATM that that withdrawal came from. However, they were always one step behind him. Luckily, the perpetrator continued to use the debit card as he traveled across the country. He now begins making his way south across the country, and each time he makes a withdrawal, the camera footage shows the same vehicle in the background, a white Ford Focus. They then put out an APB for this vehicle, and by this point, he has made his way down to Texas. On March 16, 2012, a highway patrol officer spots a white Ford Focus, and something in his gut must have said that this is the guy that they were looking for. So he begins following this vehicle, waiting for him to do anything that would be a cause for him to be pulled over. Eventually, the white Ford Focus exceeds the speed limit, and the patrol officer flips his lights on and pulls him over. Once he walks up to the vehicle, he asks for a driver's license, as normal, and is handed the license of a man from Alaska. When he looks at the name on the driver's license, he sees Israel Keys. He begins to search the car, and upon searching the car, he finds both the debit card for Samantha and her cell phone. At this point, he knows that he has the man that they have been looking for, and Israel Keys was officially arrested. 
The officer was slightly concerned, however, when he realized that Samantha was not with Israel, and it raised the question of where she may be. They brought Israel in to interview him to see what had happened and to get his side of the story. The story that Israel tells is a little bit different than what we were able to see from the camera. He's the one that lets us know that in the footage that was hard to see, he was actually tying her up. And then he's also the one that lets us know that she did try to run away from him once they had made it outside of the coffee shop. When she ran away and after he caught her, he said that he had told her that he only wanted her for the ransom money. And as long as she cooperated and the family came up with the money that he was asking for, he would just let her go. I'm assuming at this point she was probably still really freaked out, but I think that maybe she was a little bit calmer because she still had that little bit of hope left in her that maybe she was going to make it out of this situation and be okay. I agree. I feel like intense situation you just have to hold on to what you can and if someone is telling you this you're just really hoping maybe i can survive if i follow what they say the sad truth is that's not always how it ends up and that's not how it ended up in this case when the investigators begin to ask more and more questions about samantha they learn that samantha is already dead at this point and has been since the night that she was abducted The mystery has been solved. Here at Crime Over Coffee, our go-to caffeinated beverage for every episode is Fire Department Coffee. And you can get some as well and save 15% with our exclusive coupon code CRIMEPOD15. Owned and operated by firefighters and veterans, 10% of all their proceeds go directly to helping sick and injured first responders. And with an incredible range of flavors and caffeine strength, it's a company that all of us can easily support. So please go to firedeptcoffee.com and use our coupon code CRIMEPOD15 to support us, support them, help first responders, and get some incredibly tasty coffee along the way. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Wait, what about the ransom photo? Yeah, so in that ransom photo, Samantha is actually not alive. Oh, she definitely looks alive. Why? How did she not um, decompose or anything? Well, it is Alaska and it was really cold temperatures. So all, the cold temperatures must have kept her body from decomposing as rapidly as it would have. Because it was almost two weeks after she had been kidnapped that the photo was taken with that day's newspaper. And in that photo, the arm that's holding the paper is actually Israel's. So wait a minute, looking at the photo, her eyes are definitely open. Yeah, so Israel ends up telling the investigators that he had sewn her eyes open with a needle and a thread. Oh my God, that's incredibly sadistic. Well, we come to find out that he is a pretty sadistic person and he's pretty cunning, which is actually a really dangerous combo. 
As they continued questioning Israel about how he was able to abduct Samantha and get a hold of her debit card, they learn a lot more about this crime and the diabolical man that was sitting on the other side of the table. Although it may seem as if Israel was acting on a whim, he'd actually meticulously planned the abduction aside from the location of the victim. Shortly after questioning Israel, investigators are surprised to learn that they are already familiar with the man sitting in front of them. Remember when I told you guys um, that the investigators had seen a white pickup truck on the surveillance footage of the Home Depot parking lot across the street? Yes. So Israel actually did own a white pickup truck and had used it to abduct Samantha. Didn't they search the white pickup trucks in the area? Yeah, they did. However, Israel thought out just about everything. He had altered the way his truck looked just enough to throw the investigators off of his trail. He had taken a rack and toolboxes off the back of his truck when he went to the coffee stand and then added them back onto the truck after the abduction. It's kind of smart. When the police showed up to search Israel's truck, they saw that it did not match the one in the video, and this alone was enough to mark him off their list of suspects at the time. That was all it took to take him off the list? Apparently so. And actually, his truck is just a start to the list of things that was so close to tying Israel to the case early on. Israel had been driving around on the night of February 1st with the urge to kill and no victim or abduction site in mind. The only reason that he even happened to stop at Common Grounds was because it was the coffee shop that was open the latest in town. It is believed that he was actually never even a customer of Common Grounds before this night. He pulled up to the Home Depot, parked his truck there, walked across the street, and began the abduction. He held Samantha at gunpoint, as we saw in the video, and had her empty out the cash register. He then climbed into the small shack and tied her with zip ties, cutting off the extra plastic pieces. He eventually pulled her outside of the stand and went to get into her vehicle, but then learned that Samantha had been dropped off at work that day by her boyfriend. This is the point where Samantha broke away from Israel and ran, only to be caught again by him, who made her less resistant by convincing her that all he wanted was the ransom money, and then she would be let go and home free. So I know that in Alaska, they have really long nights compared to days, so I know it's probably dark even though it's only 8 o'clock or so, but... Were there any other reasons why nobody was seeing this? I mean, I feel like 8 o'clock, people are still out and about. I guess I don't really know kind of the location of where this was. Was it in the middle of nowhere or what was it like? Well, there was the snow that I was talking about. It was dark out. And there's also that bystander effect where some people may notice the crime happening but feel like it's not their business or they're just not seeing it correctly. And they choose to ignore it and move on with their day. Which is insane. Absolutely. He had also prepared enough to bring a portable police scanner with an earpiece. So Israel was actually aware of the fact that the officers were already busy responding to an emergency on the other side of town. Israel ended up getting Samantha into his truck and driving her back to his place in Anchorage. He then put her in a shed outside of his home and told investigators that he was playing loud music in the shed so that his girlfriend and daughter could not hear what was happening from inside the home. He then asked Samantha for her debit card and her phone. However, the information that she gave him was not what he was hoping for. Samantha informed Israel that her phone had been left in the coffee stand and that her debit card was in her boyfriend's truck. 
Israel decided that these were two things that he needed. So he had Samantha give him the PIN number for her debit card and then set out on another journey. Around 10.30 that night, Israel was back at Common Grounds and forcing his way inside the building to get her phone and to pick up the plastic pieces from the zip ties that he had cut off. Apparently, about four minutes after Israel left the coffee shop, Samantha's boyfriend actually showed back up to look for Samantha again and just barely missed Israel. It was at this point that Israel sent the text to Samantha's boyfriend and her boss saying that she had had a bad day and was leaving town. Then Israel drove to Samantha's house, broke into her boyfriend's truck, and stole her debit card. Did her boyfriend notice? Yeah, so her boyfriend actually saw somebody breaking into his truck, ran outside to yell at him, and then ran back inside to get help. But by the time that they came back out, Israel was already gone and had already gotten the debit card that he was looking for. So this is one of those cases where if someone had just reacted a little bit differently or a small detail was different, uh, this whole case would have gone very differently. It is upsetting that her boyfriend was right there with him so many times and was not able to, I don't know, tackle him, do anything, like get a good look to identify him or anything like that. Yeah, I can't imagine how he feels. After this, Israel went to a bank and made sure that her debit card and the PIN number she had provided worked. After he confirmed this, he went back to the shed, sexually assaulted Samantha, and strangled her to death. The next morning, Israel actually left to go on a cruise with his family, and when he returned is when he took the photo of Samantha for the ransom. After that, he cut up her body and disposed of the pieces in an ice fishing hole in the Matanuska Lake. After receiving this information from Israel, police sent divers out to the lake and were able to recover Samantha's body. The FBI was eventually brought in to continue investigating Israel, which resulted in over six hours of interview footage, which can be found online. I did go through and watch the interview footage, and if you like to lose six hours of your life you can go and watch it as well we'll post a link to the youtube video on our social media but it's just constant back and forth with israel and the investigators and he's just giving them the runaround and not really answering any questions yeah you showed me a little bit of it and it was just cringy to watch it's six hours of my life that i will never get back and I'm sure that's how the investigators felt as well, because like I said, he didn't give them any information and he just kept trying to control the investigation and how much he was giving the investigators and how much he decided to keep to himself. And the entire time, he just kept doing this really creepy laugh every time he was asked a question. Yeah, the bits you showed me, he acted so calm and chill. Like, it was just another day, like, having a conversation with your neighbor. Yeah, it was like he was just talking about how he had just played baseball with his friends. And it was just, like, this great time. And he was just giggling about it. It was weird. He also was acting really weird whenever he was asked questions about his crimes especially with the sexual crimes that he had committed. And he kept saying that he didn't want the press involved and didn't want to risk any crime movies being made about him. He also was worried about his daughter being able to Google his name and see all the crimes that he'd committed being tied to him. He basically just didn't want his daughter to have a negative image of her father. And he made investigators promise that the information he was telling them, they would just keep it to themselves and not share it with anybody. 
And at one point, he even told the investigators that if he was dead, then the investigation just wouldn't go anywhere. And the investigators kind of laughed at this and just assured him that even if he was dead, they would still continue to search for further victims until they were confident they had solved them all. Investigators were led to believe that based on his ramblings, he had killed at least 11 people and it's possible that he had killed many more. And the thing that I think is the creepiest about Israel is that he chose his victims at complete random. So he would find his victims at public parks or campgrounds or just other random public places. And he even claimed that all of his victims are still listed as missing people except for one. And this one person that he had killed, he staged the body to make it look as though it had been an accidental death and was hoping that when the body was found, it would be ruled that way. And he did state that the body was found and it was actually ruled as an accidental death. So his plan did work in that case. One other thing that I found really interesting is that he tended to refer to his victims as objects, which I feel like just goes to show how cold he was and the lack of care he felt in regard to his crimes. I find it really difficult to wrap my mind around being able to mentally separate yourself from the fact that you are mutilating and murdering somebody else's daughter, but just the fact that your own daughter might have a negative idea or thought about you, he just couldn't stand that. Yeah, he really just wanted to make sure that his family and his daughter had this good guy image for him, even though he really wasn't a great guy. I'm really curious, did they ever do any sort of psych eval on him? Yeah, so there was actually a psychological evaluation done by Dr. Ronald Roche, and it showed that Israel, quote, had a higher than average intelligence and was antisocial, which is a personality trait that could cause him to be impulsive and hostile, which I think is something that can really be shown in the nature of his crimes. So while they're investigating Israel, they learn that he actually traveled quite a bit between 2001 and 2012, which allowed him many opportunities to not only find victims of opportunity, but also to carry out his crimes. And there is a long list of all of his travel records that I will be posting a link to on our social media. If you want to go and look at everywhere that he's been and all the possible places that the FBI believes he could have victims. He visited many states, like I said, but in each of these states where he maybe had planned to carry out a crime or had just kind of thought this would be an okay place, he would bury these buckets and he kind of referred to them as kill buckets. So they included things like zip ties and guns, rope, duct tape, and stuff to clean up crime scenes, and normally included some money as well in case he needed it. And through some of Israel's confessions, the police are able to find two of his kill buckets. One was found near Blake Falls Reservoir in New York, and one was found in Eagle River, Alaska. However, there are supposedly more buried around the United States, and it's possible that they are also buried internationally. They do know that he was traveling internationally, but the FBI doesn't know if he ever actually committed any crimes outside of the United States. 
The FBI also does not believe that he found more than one victim in each state and that he would find a victim in one state, most likely murder them and possibly even dispose of them across state lines, which could mean that there's two to three states involved for each victim. So the first crime that we know that he committed was either in the summer of 1997 or the summer of 1998. Israel said that he couldn't remember which year it was, but he stated that he was in Oregon at the time and he abducted a young woman between the ages of 14 and 18 who was tubing with her friends on the Deschutes River and he abducted her, sexually assaulted her, and then let her go. And the police don't believe that this sexual assault was ever reported to law enforcement, but Israel does state that this is the first crime that he ever committed. There is one case other than Samantha's that Israel was officially able to be connected to, and it's now considered solved. So there was a couple living in Essex, Vermont, and their names were Bill and Lorraine Courier. They went missing in June of 2011. And in June of 2011, Israel flew from Anchorage to Seattle to Chicago, where he rented a car and started to head towards the East Coast. He admitted that he made a stop in Indiana for a couple of days, but what he did there is unknown. On the morning of June 8th, 2011, Israel waited at his hotel until after dark and then went out to find his victims. He was carrying with him a backpack that contained the supplies he would need, including a pan, water bottles, 50 feet of coiled nylon rope, duct tape, latex gloves, and one small propane stove. He walked around Burlington and eventually ended up at 8 Colbert Street. And based upon looking at the home, he was able to determine that there was most likely an older couple living there based on the lack of toys or anything that most people with kids would have outside their home. He walked around the small ranch house and saw no alarm system, so he decided that this was the home that he would target. He cut the phone line and entered the home through the garage and into the kitchen. Israel said that it took him all of six seconds to break into the home, and when he first entered the couple's bedroom, Bill and Lorraine woke up and were in complete shock that this strange man was standing in their bedroom wearing all black and a mask and holding a gun at them. He said that he told them both to roll over onto their stomachs on the bed, which is when he zip-tied their wrists. And then he began asking them all the questions that you would expect of a typical robbery. So do you have a safe? Where's your money? Jewelry? Do you have an ATM card? Where is it? And Bill and Lorraine reportedly gave him all of the information very willingly. And they gave him the PIN number for their debit card right away as well. And he scratched that into the surface of the back of the card so that he could remember it. Israel then grabbed two suitcases and started to fill them with valuable items from the home. And after he grabbed all of the items that he wanted, he told Bill and Lorraine that they were going to be coming with him. He actually stopped in the middle of his story to interrupt and tell the investigators that he didn't leave any evidence behind and was basically just bragging that they wouldn't be able to connect him to any of the DNA or fingerprints that were found in the home. He then goes on with the story saying that he put Bill and Lorraine into their Saturn, drove it out of the garage, 
And the entire time, the couple is pleading with him to let them go, telling them that they don't have that much money and they can have all of it and that he can take the car and they won't ever tell anybody about this incident. But Israel just tells them basically the exact same thing that he told Samantha when he kidnapped her and just said that he's only kidnapping them for a ransom and once he has the money, he's just going to let them go. Around 4 a.m. that morning, he arrived at an abandoned farmhouse off of Route 15. Once they arrived, Israel shut off the car, left Lorraine tied to the front seat of the car and grabbed Bill and took him through the basement's outdoor entrance, down the stairs, and tied him to a stool. Once he felt like Bill was secure, he left the basement and went back to the car where Lorraine had broke free and was getting out of the car. Lorraine noticed Israel coming back up the stairs and ran as fast as she could toward the main road. However, as we learned from the case of Samantha, Israel was really fast and he was able to tackle her and drag her back to the house. Israel tackled Lorraine and took her into the house, up the stairs, and into a bedroom. He strapped Lorraine's arms and legs to the bed with the duct tape that he had brought, wrapped a rope around her neck and under the mattress, tying her to the bed. Israel reports that Lorraine was fighting with him the entire time. And Bill kept yelling from the basement of the house, where's my wife, where's my wife? Israel made sure that Lorraine was securely tied to the bed, grabbed a knife, his revolver, and his water bottle, and went down to the basement. When Israel was telling the story, the investigators asked why he was bringing the water bottle with him, and he just stated, I'm not sure I want to get into that. When Israel got down to the basement, he saw that Bill had already began to break free from the stool, and it was actually broken into pieces. The only light that was in the basement was coming from a headlamp that Israel was wearing, and he could just see Bill struggling to get free. And Israel said that this pissed him off because there was a very specific way he wanted things done, and he said that he had everything he needed to do it. Investigators do believe that Israel's original plan was to rape Bill, but his plan kind of got messed up when Bill broke free from the stool. So he ended up hitting Bill with a shovel that was in the basement and Bill didn't go down from that initial hit. So at this point, Israel ran upstairs to grab the propane stove that he had brought, but realized that it had fallen through the bedroom floor in the old house. He then ran back downstairs and Bill was up on his feet yelling and trying to run away, but Israel just started shooting him in the arms, head, neck, and chest. After Bill fell to the floor, presumably dead, Israel went upstairs to Lorraine where he boiled water on the propane stove. And once again, when he was asked what that was for, he laughed and said, I don't know if I want to get into that today. So not really sure what that was for, but he continued to say that he cut off Lorraine's clothes with a knife, raped her twice, brought her down to the basement where Bill was already dead. Israel then put on a pair of leather gloves, stood behind Lorraine, and strangled her with a rope. Even after he was pretty sure she was dead, he wanted to make sure 100%, so he grabbed a zip tie, wrapped it around her throat, and pulled. But she didn't fight back, so he decided that she was dead. He then dragged Lorraine's body over to Bill's, cut off their restraint, poured Drano all over their hands and faces, and bagged each of them in two 55-gallon trash bags, rolled their remains to the corner of the basement, 
and put garbage and a bunch of wood on top. And because he was in such a rush, this was probably one of his messier crime scenes, and he ended up leaving a bunch of shell casings on the basement floor. However, even with Israel's confessions, the FBI was never able to find the courier's remains as the house had been torn down and the bodies had been presumably dumped in the local landfill with the rest of the remains of the house. So the FBI actually said that they are searching through the landfill to try to find the remains of the couriers. However, they quote have a football field worth of items to search through. And so far, they've been unable to find any of their remains. So one of the quotes that Israel actually said during an interview in April of 2012 was, I can't be satisfied sitting in prison for all of my life. I've been lots of places and I've done lots of things and sitting in prison for the rest of my life is a death penalty. Same thing to me. I'd rather go out while I still have some sanity and good memories. Israel was then found dead in his cell on December 2nd, 2012. He had slit his own wrist and strangled himself with his bedsheet. He had left a four-page long suicide note that was investigated, and there were no clues found in this letter at all. His suicide note was pretty much just a bunch of ramblings, and it really didn't make any sense. And you can find it online if you want to read it, but it's absolutely nothing and makes no sense. I wonder if it's cryptic, and maybe he left um, some sort of hidden clues in it as his final note. Well, if it was, the investigators have not found anything yet, or they just haven't released it. But as far as we're aware, there's nothing in this letter. Israel's story so far ends with his suicide, and hopefully investigators will be able to connect more cases to him to get more closure for families. On December 10th, 2012, there was a small funeral held for Israel in Deer Park, Washington. The attendees consisted of his mother and his four sisters. The pastor opened the service by saying, he is not in a better place. He is in a place of eternal torment. If you have information regarding Israel Keys, you can call 1-800-CALL-FBI or 1-800-225-5324 with any tips. Be on the lookout for a short mini episode on Monday where Erica and I share a theory we developed about a possible connection with Israel to an unsolved case close to where we live. And you'll be familiar with this case if you listen to our last episode. That's right, Lauren Spear. With all the travelogues available for Israel, we believe we can match his whereabouts to the place and time of her disappearance. If you like our podcast, you can give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also visit anchor.fm backslash erica-abby to support us by making monthly donations. We really appreciate any help we can get. If you have any cases you'd like to suggest for us, you can email us at crimeovercoffeepod at outlook.com. You could visit our Facebook at Crime Over Coffee Podcast or our Instagram at Crime Over Coffee. All this information will be on those pages as well. Thank you.